well, partner with the CIO, CTO, call out the risk, have the dialogue before, have them fund it, because you and I both know the CIO and CTO tend to have bigger budgets and security, at least as far as I've seen. We're all winners at the end of this. We're sharing the budget and, and we're reducing risk. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's my friend Samir Sait, former CISO at Amazon Whole Foods, Forcepoint, and Aero Electronics. He's talking about ways to fund projects to reduce risk as part of a larger conversation we're having about why we measure risk. There are plenty of conversations about how we measure it, but why we do it warrants more inspection. There are impacts here to business outcomes and traction, to business partnerships, to funding, to risk disposition, and to the maturity of the program over time. It's a great conversation, and we invite you to listen in. Samir, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Alan. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. So why don't we start with, uh, just give us a little brief, you know, I've already mentioned you've been a CISO several times, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about what you're up to today? So I started my career in the cyber realm, uh, in the risk management side. So technology risk management, and mostly in financial sector banking. And I've been a CISO now multiple times. I was leading InfoSec at Mass Mutual. I came to Arrow Electronics as their first CISO. I did the same thing at Forcepoint, followed you in and had some big shoes to fill, Alan. Well, thank you for that. Followed closely by Amazon, where I was leading information security for Whole Foods Market. I left Amazon almost exactly three weeks ago. All right. And now I'm now I'm in stealth mode. I'm working with an experienced co-founder on a very exciting idea and concept and solution in the cyberspace. Let me just keep it high level for now. That's awesome, man. Stealth mode, co-founder. This is all exciting stuff. All right. So what we thought we'd talk about, folks, and Samir and I chatted quite a bit before the show about this one. We've done shows on how we measure risk, and we've done shows on you know the, the details of measuring risk. But Samir had a really interesting point, which is, why do we measure risk? Everyone talks about the how. Some folks talk about the what. Not too many people actually have a conversation about the why. And, and a, a good friend of mine, a mentor of mine, has always said, lead with the why. So I thought, That's, this is a compelling reason for a show, so let's go for it. I want to point out that the first one, the, the trope is that we're always like the big why is that we're going to the board and asking for money, right? That's always trope number one is the reason we measure risk is because we have to go to the board and ask for money. Personally, in my entire CISO career, I have been in front of the board asking for money one time and it wasn't even really asking for money. I was there with the CEO and it was more like we were telling them that we were diverting funds they thought we were spending on X on Y instead. We had a new cyber priority and there was a project the board kind of had as their baby project that we were basically going to divert the funds from that over to this new cyber thing. And it wasn't even an ask, it was a tell. And that is the only time in my entire career I've been in front of the board, you know, using risk measurements to, to ask for money. So how about you, Samir? Have you ever had to go in front of the board and ask for money? No, I, I don't ever remember having to use risk or any other mechanism to go and ask for money. It's more about this is what we need to do. And there's obviously money associated with it. And this is the priority of it. And usually you just get a, that makes sense. I mean, you're not, you're asking for things that make sense. And thank you for the financial aspect of that. And it's never a discussion. I feel like the the money discussions happens way before you go to the board. It happens with leadership and executives and right. getting alignment and all that fun stuff. 
Right. And it shouldn't be a board level conversation. I mean, if, if you're asking the board for money, somebody's mismanaging the company is kind of my take on it. Right. I mean, that's a CEO problem. If the CISO is having to go to the board and ask for money in, in, in my mind. Um, but we do measure risk and we want to measure risk. And to your point, there are still financial applications and implications. So what does risk measurement mean when we talk about like the beginning of the CISO journey versus maybe towards the end of the CISO's journey when the maturity is there for the program? Like what's the big delta between early stage and late stage maturity program when we talk about why we measure risk? Yeah, no, it's a great question because I think the why doesn't just come down to influencing business leaders. It's also to explain to your team and your leadership team as a CISO, we've got leaders reporting to us, right? And how do you get leaders to work cohesively, understanding that you're you're working together to reduce a risk, right? And if you're reducing a risk and one leader in the security operations side has to do five things and the AppSec leader has to do two things and your GRC person's got to do one thing, getting them to understand that this is how we've prioritized our risk, I think is as important as going to leadership and saying, hey guys, I need support from legal or HR or a bunch of other folks that don't even report into technology, right? And so getting that why and getting people aligned on a common language is, I think, why we measure risk or why we uh, communicate risk both uh, up and down. I love that. That's that's a really important point. There's up, down, and out, right? Out, too, because you're informing the rest of the business and and the leadership ranks with whom you are peers, right? there are implications for their decisions and behaviors and there are risks with some of their decisions and behaviors. And someone has to have that frank and open dialogue with them about, hey, we've measured the risks and if, as long as you're doing X, risk is Y and, you know, you could do Z and the risk would be Q and, you know, those kinds of conversations take place as well, right? Exactly. So how about the inside out view versus the outside in view on risk measurement, right? We, we this, is, this is another perspective that you and I chatted with briefly. Um, and, and I wanted to hear your take on this one. Yeah, it's... Um I think both are important, first of all. I don't want to throw shade on any solutions out there that provide an external attack surface view versus, you know, kind of uh, trying to quantify your internal controls and your risk kind of benchmark, if you will. I think that the external perspective needs to be used in a very careful manner, because if you use it in a manner that that is going to incite fear, then you're not going to have too many chances of doing that, right? So by saying that, I've got mm-hmm. a XYZ score that's below average compared to the retail industry. That'll probably get you some support and how do we get there and how do we partner and things like that. But I think the better way to do it is probably the inside out approach, in my view, because you get to talk mm-hmm. about controls that people have to manage internally in order to raise the security bar and you need their support. The second is, I think the internal control framework, if you look at what boards are using to hear uh, are used to hearing from CISOs and chief audit executives, they speak the internal control framework language very, very well, right? So if you start with the internal control language, whether it's based on you know quantitative or qualitative data, and then layer on components of external attack surface or external view, and then use that to create some magic formula that's unique to every company to call out the risk, I think that's the better approach in my eyes, Alan. I don't know. What do you think? This is music to my ears. First of all, you mentioned whether it's qualitative or quantitative. This is a very important point. Everyone always talks about, you know, we've done shows on FAIR. On, on, we've, I've, I've recorded two shows on measuring risk and the science and the math behind accurate, you know, risk measurement. But the reality is I have worked in one shop, for example, 
where what they were used to seeing upstairs, what was reported to the board, what was reported to the CEO was a heat map that didn't even have numbers on it. It was just a nice kind of red goes to yellow, goes to green sort of, you know, grid with some arrows and circles and movement and motion and all these things. And there were no numbers on it. It was that non-quantified. And that was perfectly acceptable for the context of that environment. And to your point, it was an internal sort of framework that, that we were using to generate that data. And then external stuff would, would come in and pepper it. And I love what you're saying. Don't, don't go the fear route. Don't go FUD. If you're going to use external, don't go FUD. I think external becomes a nice complement. I think it's a way of maybe justifying or maybe having a data feed to support or maybe demonstrating where, you know, this risk is now higher because of this one external factor has altered this. So here's this totally pretty heat map that isn't even numbers based, but we can say that this new external phenomenon has altered the results of that heat map, right? And and this is why to me, and this, this ties into the whole conversation in a total sidebar, and I don't want to sidetrack us too much here, but the MITRE ATT&CK framework. People try to treat the MITRE ATT&CK framework like it's a true framework, like a NIST, a CSF, or like an ISO 27001. And the reality is MITRE ATT&CK framework is that outside-in perspective, and so vigorously so that I don't think it can ever truly be a real framework. I think it's more of a kill chain database. It's great supporting evidence, and it's a fantastic tool for the team themselves to pick up and use as they're addressing specific concerns, but I don't think it's anything I'm going upstairs with. Agreed, hundred percent. It's, and I think even with the the dashboard you mentioned, right? And I think, you know, you and I have seen different companies use different mechanisms to communicate risk and priorities uh, across teams. I think the other thing I learned also is that if you have too many metrics, too much data, right? Too many flashing signals, if you will, right? It distracts from the purpose of your meeting because at the end of the day, the CEO, the CTO, the CIO, the CISO included, we've got so many things to worry about, so many things to focus on that, you know, I think we could either dilute the message or confuse the message. That's what I feel. Right. And there's there's another component to that too. If you go to a CEO with the everything story, here's all 1,000 risks that we've identified for the whole company, ranked in order from number one to number 1,000, you know, and, and, and it's super scary and it's a bad story and there's all these horrible things we need to fix and we've run the math and we figured out we need $3.7 million to address these 1,000 risks. There's a couple of things coming out of that story. Number one, you know you're not going to get the $3.7 million, right? It's not going to happen. No one ever gets the full amount to address the full kit of, of the full whatever, when I'm in my arbitrary example, 1,000 risks. So now what you've done is you've put your CEO in a vulnerable position. There's no way you can fund to address the thousand risks, but now he knows about the thousand risks. And now he has the liability as the CEO of knowing I made a conscious decision to not spend money to address known risks. Is this really the position you want to be putting your CEO in? Or do you pre-triage? And do you say, based on some prioritization schema that we've come up with, and it doesn't matter what it is almost. Here's the top X risks. And we believe this addresses X percent of our concerns. And, and to slice and dice the top slice off of that anyway, like I don't think you ever should be going upstairs with the full story, ever. Yeah, no, completely agree. And I think what I'd add to that in my, in my experience has been whether you report to the CIO, CTO, or your trusted kind of partner dotted line, I think a lot of times the CIO or CTO has projects that they are working on that potentially could reduce risk for the CISO. 
whether mm-hmm. it's consolidating the number of chat tools you have or reducing the number of uh, uh, file storage systems, right? It, it, and you're, you're right. I mean, going and saying this is the risk that we've got too many file storage systems and we don't know what data is on there. Well, partner with the CIO, CTO, call out the risk, have the dialogue before, have them fund it because you and I both know the CIO and CTO tend to have bigger budgets and security, at least as far right. as I've seen. We're all winners at the end of this. Right. We're sharing the budget and, and we're reducing risk. So, yeah. And taking that story upstairs after that proactive work has been done is also a sign to the CEO of, look at my CISO getting along with everybody. Look at my CISO being yeah. a team player. Look at yeah. all of these people that report to me working together and coordinating and solving problems. And back to that up, down, and out, on the outside, the coordinating with the other players in, in the space, that there's this definite partnership. And every time you tackle a project like that with a CIO or a CTO, they're adapting and ingesting a little more security in their paradigm. And the next project becomes a little easier to do. That's been my experience, too, that every time you can leverage out and a little bit up before yeah. you go all the way up, you're going to be more successful, right? Absolutely. I think um, it's taking some of their language and giving them some of your language, right? Yep. My nomenclature is you know, probability, impact, likelihood, you know, kind of zero day. You know, these are the terms we use. And they use terms like, you know, cost, budget. Uh, they use a lot of financial terms for sure, but a lot of it is total cost of ownership. Mm-hmm. ROI. Uh, working backwards plans. Yep, ROI. Yep. 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 No, that's exactly it. And this goes back to that whole point that CISOs have to begin adopting more of that business language. And we, you know, we've, we've done a show on that one too already. Um, awesome. Where, where we talked very much about that business-oriented CISO. And there's so many of us that still are speaking nothing but technical and security terms, and it gets in the way. All right. So back to the risk conversation. How does accurate risk management affect, let's say, uh, I'm going to rattle off a few of them here, business traction, success of the overall security program, prioritization of tasks, investments, and activities. And I think you've already kind of covered that one. That's the one where you're working internally with your own team saying, hey, we've, we've measured risk and it's actually helping us internally prioritize tasks, investments, activities, and all that. But let's talk a little bit more about business traction. Let's talk a little bit more about success of the overall program as, you yeah. know, why? Why do we measure risk? How does it influence those two? Yeah, What I learned, Alan, and I saw some of this at Amazon Whole Foods as well, if you can find a repeatable mechanism to showcase to your vendors, your partners, your customers in particular, Mm -hmm. that you are actively managing to a risk bar and you're raising that bar as you grow your company, as you grow your capabilities and your product, I think it gives a sense of like, reduces the friction. Let me just say that when sales teams need to make a close a deal, when we need to respond to 50 questionnaires at one time, right? Mm -hmm. Or within a week. What I noticed is security and risk are kind of like privacy and compliance, they're like, if not cousins, brothers and sisters, right? Right. In the family. And I've had dialogues with CISOs of companies that are buying my product when I was mm-hmm. at Forcepoint. And when I was able to explain that this is how we prioritized our risk, and this is why we're focused on the top three or four items that we want to solve this year, and mm-hmm. we're doing some house cleaning as well, they got it. They empathized with me and said, okay, so the question, the one question I have around encrypting my data in your cloud environment mm-hmm. is important. But the fact that you're taking care of overall risk to reduce exposure of my data, mm-hmm. whether it's from phishing campaigns or inappropriate access with MFA, et cetera, et cetera, they're like, we get it. You're on the track. And the fact that you're a CISO with a team doing this makes us comfortable doing business with you, right? So I yep. think that's why we really have those risk-based dialogues, even though they're not very, uh, let me say, 
direct or very like there's still a little bit of nuances to how you measure risk. Right. Uh, there's an understanding you have a method to the madness. All right, let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. The complexity of cloud infrastructure means every organization's security challenges are unique. Whether your challenge is threat hunting, policy management, cloud workload protection, or all of the above, Uptix helps you quickly identify and eliminate observability gaps in your security program. That's Uptix, analytics for the modern attack surface, observability for the modern defender. Check out Uptix by visiting uptix.com. That's U-P-T-Y-C-S dot com. Thank you, Uptix, for sponsoring this episode. All right, so this method to the madness that you describe, as long as it's internally consistent to me, it almost doesn't even matter which method you choose, whether it's fair or whatever. You know, demonstrate that it's cohesive, demonstrate that it's consistent, demonstrate that it's actually causing you to do a priority-based schema and that you are, in fact, doing it in priority order. That should be sufficient. And I don't think that, that the CISO on the other side of that table in that conversation is going to be upset that you didn't use FAIR. He's not going to be upset that you aren't using his grid that happens to be, a, I don't know, seven by seven instead of your five by five, you know, likelihood impact kind of thing. Like the fact that you have it, you are using it, it is driving what you are doing. You're not just blindly going and doing priorities. You're doing priorities based on that risk. And I think you're right. I think that's absolutely the point of conversation. So there's some real business traction right there. And it's interesting with this whole supply chain world blowing up the way it has that every one of us is either having that conversation on one side of the table or even on both sides of the table. Um, you know, every CISO. And it's amazing to me how many CISO conversations I'm now having because I'm on the vendor side of the fence again right now, right? And it's a CISO to CISO conversation. Somebody's considering using our tool and their CISO wants to meet with me and we, and we have that conversation. That's, and that's exactly really what's being asked. It doesn't matter what the questionnaire says. The questionnaire could be 100 questions, could be 300 questions, right? Could be 10 yeah. questions. What they really want to know is, dude, <laughs> are you taking good steps? Are you going to protect me? Do you care? Are you invested? Yeah. And are you doing this in a sort of a priority and sort of risk aware way? Or are you just blindly running around doing stupid security stuff? That's really the point of that entire questionnaire, <laughs> right? I like that. Uh, running around doing stupid stuff. I like that because uh, you and I both know, man, we've been through the trenches and I wish we had more time to do stupid stuff, right? <laughs> I wish. I wish we did. There are so many good things that the team comes up with. And this is one of these things, and this ties yeah. back into this whole like success of the overall security program. Why do, why do we use risk to measure success of the overall security program? There's nothing sadder to me than somebody on my team coming to me with a very clever new idea. And it's like, hey, if we just did this and this, we could have this much more security overnight. And all we need is this little investment of time and money and whatever. And I have to tell them right now, no. Right yeah. now, no, because I've got this higher priority of risk measurement and that's not in my top five right now. And it's going to divert us from one of the top five, even though it's a really smart idea and a clever idea. And I could go upstairs and sell it in a heartbeat, but we are measuring based on risk. You know, like sometimes you have to say no to the cool stuff, to the smart stuff, to the clever stuff. Uh, sometimes you have to demoralize your team and tell them we're going to accept this moment of bad security over here in the corner because we're focused on this bigger area of bad security over here right in the center of the table. Yeah. And and I think sometimes the teams are let down and don't understand that that very business perspective. Right, right. I think um, it's a two-way street, right? Sometimes we bite the bullet and tell our teams, listen, yes, that's going to give us incredible efficiency, better visibility. It's going to potentially reduce risk in the long run, right? Mm -hmm. But we've got tactical things that we have to solve today because it impacts the business. 
On the flip side, when we do deal with those tactical things, Alan, in, in terms of kind of keeping our security teams motivated, we have to talk about things that are not in the news, but could be in the news because our teams are sometimes smarter than us and they can see the future. Right. They talk to other security analysts. They talk to other security engineers, right? Yeah. So it, it's a tough balance. It's a, I think you know, I'm empathetic to every CISO out there, frankly, because of this. But I also think that the world is coming to realize that what we've been kind of talking about for years, you and I, many, many years, mm-hmm. uh, cannot all be quantified in a spreadsheet, right? There is some dialogue and discussions and deep dives into processes and activities because we are here to protect the business. We're not doing this for fun, you and I, right? Right. Right. Well, we're having fun. We're not doing it for said fun, right? That's no, yeah. that's, and that's exactly it. And and it and it goes back to those higher business priorities, right? I mean, we talk about success of the overall security program. If you can prove your business aligned, if you can prove you're addressing the big risks that now the CEO is aware of, you're going to be deemed to have a successful program. And this brilliant idea that your engineers and your architects came to you with on a Monday morning with, hey, we thought about this over the weekend. Look at this cool thing we could be doing. And to your point, they may even be ahead of the curve. They, they may well be aware of, you know, three months from now, this will become a high priority risk. But it's not today. It's not on the table today. It's not measured today. And it's not in the CEO's ear today. We're going to table that one. And and I, I do hate having to do that because it, it feels like you're – you're squelching creativity. It feels like you're squelching proactiveness. It feels like you're squelching. Like there's a lot of these good things that you're saying no to. And, and sometimes the ones that you are tackling are the most boring of all. Exactly. I, I think they're boring, especially for engineers that are used to solving hard problems or building really cool solutions. Mm-hmm. I think where we have to all do more is... For example, I'll, I'll talk about a partnership I had with human resources in a previous company, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about how onboarding, offboarding, changes for employees are done through the HR management system, right? And as we do that, how do we include the cyber risk perspective? And what I did was I assigned someone in my, in my org to kind of partner with someone in their org to kind of map out that process and think about the systemic risk. You know, you and I can talk about financial risk and operational risk all day long, but that would be stretching our roles from what, we, what we've been kind of chartered with, right? Mm-hmm. But, but the good news or the bad news or good news is a lot of these business processes are completely dependent on SaaS applications, mm-hmm. on-prem systems. So most of that operational risk is really technical risk, right? Most yeah. of it. And so, because you and I have kind of also taken on availability risk, if you will, at least from the cyber perspective, we can then have people in our orgs who are don't find it super interesting to do HR risk minimization. Once they understand the systemic impact of what they're doing to minimize that HR operational risk, they can either be a light bulb that goes off and they say, this is awesome. I am supporting employees and employees are the lifeblood of our company and I'm making it frictionless for employees to join and leave and get their benefits and and not have the exposure that could lead to something bad happening, right? right? Or they could turn around and say, Samir, this is the most boring thing you've ever given me. I appreciate it, but send me back to the dungeon so I can be looking at threat actors, right? Right, but, right. But by giving them that option, you're showing them the, the world that you're dealing with. And mm-hmm. I think that when teams see the world that us as CISOs have to deal with, they understand, okay, 
now I know why Samir can't fund that $3 million SIM solution that we've been asking for, right? Right. He's focused right. on reduce. <laughs> you get it. Yeah. Or even authorize the doesn't cost any money and it's only going to take us eight weeks. Really cool project we came up with on the tech stack front, right? Like like sometimes right. you're even saying no to the small stuff that that they don't they don't get at first. And yeah. and I think to your point that that communication is absolutely valuable. And again, this is the whole conversation is why do we measure risk? Well, that's a great reason. We measure risk so we can go to our own teams and say, guys, this is a cool idea. Show me where it fits on the current risk chart. Yeah, I was also thinking of, you know, you and I had a similar experience in this, but having a GRC function, right? Yeah. And so risk is something that you can talk to the finance team about and maybe executives at at large companies, but good governance yeah. is an outcome you get from good risk management. Yes. And vice versa, if you have good governance at the C level, you know, potentially it could lead to good risk outcomes, right? So there's a, there's a uh, kind of a, a two-way approach. And in fact, both ways work. A risk can be from the bottom up, yep. from the top down. But when you do it from the top down, it's really good governance at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And to your point, once that risk is understood, once it's measured, it's in the system, it's being managed. Governance is a natural side effect of that. And this is this goes back to a LinkedIn conversation I had a couple of years ago where we were joking around about GRC and should we rearrange the letters? And everybody decided RGC was really the right order. Risk first, <laughs> nice. governance second, compliance should be last, right? Yeah, and then, of course, RGC. the financial folks and the banking folks came in with compliance is first. <laughs> you know, but that's that's another story. But yes, risk first, governance second is a beautiful model if risk really is being managed. I think that's a great example. So, so let's get a little more tactical. Let's get a little more concrete with it. How does measuring the risk affect the dispositions in terms of like acceptance, minimization, remediation? You know, we've got specific risks in front of us. We've bubbled up to the CEO the top five risks. We've measured them through whatever means we have. And we've got our heat map and our chart and our whatever we've sent upstairs. We're now talking about acceptance, minimization, remediation. And I'm assuming that kind of covers generically our three dispositions, right? So what do you think? What's the, what's the relationship there? Yeah, I think, and and again, even before going to the CEO, right? I think the conversations that need to have have happened with your head of legal and finance and potentially mm-hmm. the CIO, mm-hmm. CTO is the trade-offs that you're making, right? You, you said yeah. it right. Do you want to minimize? Do you want to accept? Do you want to completely remediate? Do you want to transfer? Maybe there's a fourth one in there, right? right? Transference. Right. And so transference are a very interesting topic I was having the other day around transference. There are companies now that are helping cyber insurers measure risk, right? Yes. So they can do their portfolio management better. Well, why don't we look at it the same way for ourselves? Because we are managing our portfolio of risk, right? right. We're not a MGA or MGU, but we are a company that yeah. needs to make some decisions. Right. So I was thinking to myself, does it make sense to, to kind of call out the outcome of transference and therefore you get an outcome that's minimizing? the impact by transferring the risk, right? So the first step is I transfer, but then I minimize because I bought cyber insurance. And this is the cost right, right. of that cyber right. insurance. And the other alternative is I remediate the risk or I manage the risk, right? Yep. And I don't go to a third party. I don't transfer it, but this is the cost, right? right? right. And then suddenly I'm having this dialogue around and the third one, of course, I mean, not to scare everybody, but I accept the risk mm-hmm. and the potential breach is this much. And it happens in 4% of Fortune 500s in retail. 
And therefore, I have some magic math, back of the napkin math, and I've got three financial outcomes. And so suddenly, I can either tell the CIO, hey, with your 500 million budget, which would you like to pick? And he or she might say, well, I've, you know, 500 million is already accounted for. Uh, let's go talk to the CFO. And I think that why we measure it to get people speaking that the lifeblood of, of the company's language using tools, and when I say tools, not not just fair or homegrown kind of methodologies, but tools as in financial modeling tools yeah. to turn around and say, now we've given you data, right? Yeah. And the decision's in your hands. Yep. And I'm happy to go along with this as long as the acceptance of the path forward is not falling on my my tiny shoulders, if right, that makes sense. Right, right, yeah. right. No, that is. And, and, and to your point, there's there's a cost calculus on both sides of that measurement equation. And we don't always consider that, right? People talk about this is a big, bad risk, spend this much money and it goes down, but they don't talk about what's the cost of leaving it out there. And that's, this is what fair tries to address, you know, is, is, you know, let's, what's the cost of the risk on the other side, not just the cost of driving it down, but, but what do we impact and change and alter there? And to your point with the insurance policies now, it's really becoming a very different game. There are companies enabling and assisting those insurance companies because those insurance companies, it was the wild, wild west when it started. Nobody had the right formula as a cyber insurer for how to measure what to ask, what to promise, what to charge, and what to pay out, right? All of that math was unknown when it began. All of that yeah. was guesswork. And every firm had its own proprietary set of guesswork. And it's becoming more standardized, and it's becoming more commoditized, and it's becoming more accurized. And one of the spillouts of that is they are demanding that cost calculus on both sides of the equation. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think about that, Alan. I mean, when I was purchasing cyber insurance, I didn't think about the fact that the why is also to inform the insurer so that maybe I get a better premium. I mean, I think the market for cyber risk communication or the group of people you need to uh, communicate cyber risk to is a lot bigger, right? At the end of the day. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. And the insurance companies are, are getting wise to this. And, you know, similar, you know, we talked about tools that can do all this stuff, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, my preferred method, and everyone knows this, I think, I think that knows what I do for a living these days, but it's, it's the three-legged stool, I call it. You want to know how you're impacting maturity when you measure risk. You want to know how you're impacting risk reduction when you're measuring it. And you want to know impact of business objectives. To me, that's the three-legged stool. If I can make a move and that move is explained in all three of those terms, why are we doing this? Well, business objectives, why are we doing this? Well, risk reduction, why are we doing this? Well, maturity improvement versus any framework, all the frameworks, whatever, it doesn't matter. The insurance carriers are asking those exact same questions now too. They don't care about the business objectives, but they care about the other two big time. And if you can tie in business objectives and you're having a cost-balanced conversation with them, then they do even start to care about that third leg of the stool too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I got another question for you. I like to end the show with uh, this question now for every guest. And that is, Samir Sate, what surprises you the most? in cybersecurity? I'm surprised every day, but I'll tell you this, the number of vendors is surprising to me. And you know, you and I grew up in cybersecurity, many years in it. The number of vendors coming at this from so many different angles is causing me to take a step back and think, is it noise? Is it FUD? Is it clear? Everybody says they don't compete with anybody. So it's, I'm so surprised that there's so many vendors trying to do so many unique things, but not having the kind of insight to kind of call it as 
we are disrupting a space or we're doing something a little bit differently than someone else. So that's surprising to me. Yeah, that's no, that's a really, really good answer. I, I'm floored. The uh, who was that group? It starts with an M. Uh, Momentum Cyberscape is that the one? Yep. And you blow that chart up. You have to blow that chart up to even read the logos because there's so many logos on that page. And and you start to see categories and you start to see 15, 20 vendors in every category. And then you realize there's 15 or 20 categories. And yeah, it does confuse. I, I think some vendors come out of the box knowing we've got some existing competition and the industry allows for that and, and is cool with that, right? Like, oh, okay, we'll have a 10th player in this space. And then other times there's true disruption and true innovation. There's not a whole lot of that, obviously, for every... 10 claims of disruption. I think there's one actual instance, right? But yeah, we tolerate that and and we think that's okay. And we're okay with having a, a 20 by 20 grid of vendors solving our, you know, five or six problems. And <laughs> to, to circle full back on the conversation, we already, we went through the why we measure and we came up with the top five that we care about. And now I'm looking yeah. at a grid of 20 by 20 vendors to solve my top five risks. The vast majority of those vendors are going to have absolutely no applicability to that short list. Right. And it's, it's very specific to an industry, a unique situation. And I already, like you said, we, we're already measuring hundreds and thousands of risks in our environment. You just added five more to my list because you said, oh, well, there's a unique attack vector and I'm solving just that, right? So my right. my my takeaway is, is it a product? Is it a feature? Is it a module? Is it a company, right? What, what are you trying right. to build here, right? And there might be multiple answers, but I digress. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. Well, Samir Sait, thank you so much for coming on down to the Cyber Ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.